I went back to UEA last Friday to do a talk to some of the students and I walked past what used to be called the chaplaincy. It's now called the multi-faith centre. And I remember going to that and I kept looking at these people thinking they get so much out of this. Why can't I understand what they get out of it? Because I, I always have this bit of a block where people who I regard as highly intelligent seem to believe in fairies. And I, I can't get my head around that at all because I, as we've discovered I'm a bit of an emotional person I don't always think in the most logical way so in some ways I think well why can't I accept that there can be some sort of superior being because the logical side of my brain tells me that that simply cannot be the case hello welcome to confessions my name's Giles Fraser and uh, with me today is broadcaster politico Ian Dale um I'm a bit nervous about this one because... You're you know, nervous. You're... What do you think I am? <laughs> I've heard your others. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Ian. So uh, if you've heard the others, you know, we start by talking about you and your family background and where you come from, and then we try and sort of like, we'll take it from there. So um, tell me about where you were brought up and... Uh... Well, I was born in Cambridge and brought up in Suffern Walden, um, well, in a little village called Ashton, about four miles away from Suffern Walden in, in North Essex. And I think I had the perfect childhood. I was brought up on a farm, um, not a huge farm. Um, my parents, both my parents, had been in farming families for donkey's years and went to the local primary school, sort of 100 kids, and it, it was kind of different kind of primary school though in some ways because there was an orphanage in the village and most of the kids in the orphanage came from London and most of them were black. So I had the unique experience in a little Essex village of growing up with black kids. Right. And I think that in a strange way has kind of informed my politics a bit because I don't really notice colour. And people think of, if you're on the right and you're a conservative, obviously you're a racist. And I mean, we maybe come on to that sort of thing a bit later. But I grew up with a lot of black kids and it was perfectly normal for me. Whereas I suspect even sort of five miles away in a primary school, they wouldn't have seen a black kid in their school at all, ever. Um, then I went to the local comprehensive. But My your mum and dad... Your, your mum and dad... What do they farm? I mean, what are they, what are they? It was a 220-acre arable farm. Well, it was... They had animals until we entered the common market, and then they all had to be sold because it was completely uneconomic. And I don't know whether that turned me into... This, this makes you a Brexiter. Well, it, it kind of didn't at the time because... Um, Although I remember my first political memory, and this must have been in one of the 1974 elections when I would have been 11, 12... I remember walking into my parents' bedroom very early one morning explaining to them why they should vote Labour, <laughs> bizarrely. And it was all to do with the common market. And Because my, my dad had been terribly against the common market because he knew what the effect on uh, his farm would be. So we had beef cattle, we had pigs, they all had to go. And it was, it was a tragedy in a way because I know people think... Why that did they have to go? because of the rules of the common agricultural policy. It was no longer economic for small farms, particularly in, in our part of the country, to go in for that sort of farming. So every, all the meadows were turned into wheat fields. And um, I would work on the farm. I remember I was paid 10 pence an hour to muck out the pigs every Saturday morning. I hated it. And I always knew that I didn't want to be a farmer. 
bizarrely, right? I mean, from a very, very early age, there was a lot of family pressure from um, not my parents. My parents never put any pressure on me. But all my cousins were in farming families. And, of course, traditionally, the oldest son always takes over the farm. I was the oldest son. you got brothers and sisters. Got two sisters. Yeah. And um, a lot of... Well, I would always get the question, so you're going to be a farmer when you grow up oh, then? Yeah. And I would have to say, oh, yes. And right up until the age of about 12 or 13, um, I was supposed to go to agricultural college. And I knew, Siren Sester. Well, no, it, it was... Um, <laughs> No, it wasn't. And I'm now trying to remember the oh, name. No. But anyway, it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so when I chose my O-level subjects, I ch- had to choose science subjects, even though I was hated science, couldn't do it. So I ended up doing biology, failed at that, got a grade D, ended up doing physics, got ungraded, because I just didn't understand <laughs> it at all. Um, and it was, I think it became then apparent to my parents that this wasn't what I was going to do. And I'll always be grateful to them for never pressurizing me. And I think a lot of my wider family thought I was a complete traitor and, and how I passed up this opportunity to take over the family farm. Um, and I, it must have been difficult for my parents. We never actually talked about it, funnily enough. Right. Uh, but I started... Are your, par- are your parents still with us? No, my mother died six years ago. My father died two years ago. So my sisters and I have inherited the farm. And at the moment, we don't quite know what to do with it because land values have plummeted, I have to say, because of Brexit, <laughs> or at least partially. And um, it's, so it's quite difficult because th- there's that emotional side where you think, well, we've it is our home. Um, we've lived there... Well, I lived there until I was 18. I would go back a hell of a lot. Uh, and it, it, there are lots of emotional ties. But in the end, it is uneconomic to continue running it as a farm. Not one of us could actually take it over. So we're renting it out at the moment. Right. Is that, is that um, in terms of the values of your, of your parents, were they sort of Tory voters? Were they, were they the values that you, you sort of picked up by osmosis? Um, no. My mother was a liberal. She loved Jeremy Thorpe. Until the Troubles. Oh. <laughs> um, my father wasn't particularly political at all. I think he probably voted Liberal. Uh, he certainly wouldn't have voted Conservative in 1974 after we'd gone into the common market. So I'm sure he voted Liberal then. My grandmother was a big influence on my life. I didn't know three of my grandparents, but my paternal grandmother lived with us and she died when I was 17. And she and I had a very tempestuous relationship. I, I really loved my grandmother. Um and she was a great influence on my life. She was the one, when I came home in my second year at secondary school, I said, well, they want, they've given me the chance to learn German, but I'm, I, I don't really want to do it. And she said, well, just do it for a year and see how it goes. It may be something that you might like. And, of course, I then ended up studying at university. And you're fluent in German, aren't you? Well, I was fluent. I, I'm not going to say I am fluent now. I can still understand it all. It takes me a little while to get back into it. Uh, but I could speak German, so no German knew that I was English, which is probably one of the things I'm most proud of in my life because it's not an easy language to learn. Um, but I was I intended to be a German teacher, but I've never done it because politics, the politics virus struck. And when did the politics virus struck? Because I mean, it doesn't it sounds like a reasonably apolitical sort of wandering around the farm type of? 
yeah, childhood. It was, and because I mean, there was no <clears throat> internet, obviously, in those days, and there were two television, three television channels, so it, it was a bit of an insular existence. We never went on. We went on one family holiday in 1969 to Westgate on Sea to the Ivy Side Hotel. I can even remember the name <laughs> of the hotel because that's what it meant. And while we were there, we went on a day trip to Boulogne, which was a real adventure in those days. Um, so, I. I suppose I became politically conscious. Well, it must have been in the 1970s, the early 1970s. And I think it was the three-day week and the strikes that really helped form my political opinions because I couldn't understand why we were having to eat our tea by candlelight, that there were power cuts all the time. And people who are of a younger generation just can't relate to this because they've never seen it happen. The country was a basket case, and it was a basket case because of the continuous strikes, particularly by the miners, but not exclusively so. And it seemed to many people that it was the trade unions who were governing the country, not the elected government of the day. So that started to form my political opinions. And then when I was 16, after we'd finished our uh, O-levels, the GCSEs of their day, um, we had a month where we were supposed to do a project because there was nothing else for us to do until we started A-levels. And, and my group in, the, in my year decided to do a project on local politics. And we interviewed the mayor of Saffron Walden, who was a liberal lady. And I must have been quite impressed with her because I remember a few days later a car came up the drive and it was a member of the local Liberal Party and wanted to sign me up to join. They didn't, did they? They did. Oh, my word. This is confessions. Yeah. This is a real well, confession. The first of many. <laughs> um, and uh, so I joined the Liberal Party. Right. My, my mother was slightly horrified by this, even though she was a Liberal herself, because she thought I was too young. I was 16. Um, but it was later that year, and this was 1978, that it must have been only, I think, in October that year that I must have been a speech that Margaret Thatcher made to the Tory party, com party conference, sort of the, the, the October before the winter of discontent. And I remember listening to this, thinking, well, I agree with every word of that. And then I realised that actually I wasn't a liberal, I was a conservative. Can, can I say something? So this is just probably a story against myself, but um, I think there's something a bit weird about young Tories. So let me explain what I mean. I mean, I wouldn't disagree. I, I, I mean, I, I sort of understand when you're young, I the sort of socialism changed the world, all that sort of stuff. That sort of goes in with the sort of utopianism of being 16, 17. But what is it that drives a, a sort of, you know, 17-year-old to want to be an advocate of Mrs Thatcher? I mean, I sort of understand it when you're older, but I do, think, you under, do you I understand think you, the I think weirdness? You, you have, I do, but you have to put yourself in the time... The country was on its knees. We'd had to go to the IMF. There were strikes all over the place. Inflation was at 25%. I mean, we think... Three... But you're not bothered at 17 no, about you inflation are, being 25%, you, look, I, went, are you? I went on school exchanges to Germany, and the Germans took the piss out of us because of our strike. We were the sick man of Europe. And I like to be proud of my country. And I couldn't defend it to these people. We went to the East German border, and I saw socialism in action there. So all of those things to, to get together... Plus what Margaret Thatcher was, I mean, she was kind of, the, I know you're going to laugh at this, but she was kind of the Jeremy Corbyn of her day where she was articulating what a, a huge number of people were thinking. She diagnosed the problem and she'd come up with a solution. That's the difference where Corbyn, I don't, he's may have, or McDonald more than Corbyn, may have diagnosed some economic problems, but has come up with entirely the wrong solutions. Whereas Margaret Thatcher 
came up with all sorts of things that people of my age could actually relate to. And there's a whole generation of people of my age now who are now either in politics or have some sort of influence on politics who were inspired by her at that time. Now, I don't see anybody really on the right of politics now capable of doing that. That's the sad thing. So you've got... This is why... I suppose, so many young people voted Remain because they couldn't relate to a lot of the people on the Brexit side of the argument uh, who were capable of putting over the case, and they're still not. It's le- the, the case for Brexit is now being subcontracted to people like me, and I, I really don't like that. The people who advocated Brexit in the first place should be out there sort of selling it on a daily basis, and they're not. We're not disagreeing about that. The, the, this is the, the young Ian Dale who's... Uh sort of beginning to fall for Mrs Thatcher and beginning to fall for these politics. But also, so you famously gay, people talk about you being gay, you're married, Mazatov. Um, did you know that? Was that, was that a part of well, what was going th- on a, when you were younger? There's another stage younger? before that, because I was sort of radicalised into active politics. That's not an unfortunate uh, phrase to use. Um, in 1982, during the Falklands War, um, when I was actually in Germany at the time, and I can remember my German friend's father saying to me, oh, this is just a little empire thing. This will never come to anything. And I said, well, you don't know Margaret Thatcher. And I remember being at university at East Anglia, the University of Easy Access, as we like to call it in those days. It certainly isn't. I'm, believe it or not, I'm now a visiting professor there. Who knew? <laughs> and I, was, I went to a debate. And it was a debate between, I thought it would be somebody putting forward the government's point of view, somebody putting forward the views of why we shouldn't be going to war. But it wasn't. It was a debate, the hard left against the soft left. And I sat there getting increasingly angry as it went on, thinking, well, why is nobody putting forward the case for retaking the Falklands? So I got up on my hind legs for the first time and told the assembled hundreds of lefty students what I thought. And that was my baptism into the world of politics. Of fire. Of fire. And I rather enjoyed it. And at the Freshers' Fair in my second year, we set up a stand for to set up a conservative association, which, looking back, was a fairly brave thing to do because the university was totally left-wing dominated, the students' union, everything. But we actually got more members than the Labour Party did. And the Labour Party loved this because they could now fight us rather than the trots. I so see. I, I would, we would get cabinet ministers coming up, and, it, uh, and I then got a, an invite, and think of this – a 20-year-old boy from Essex getting an embossed invite to go to a reception at, at Downing Street. January 1983, this was. And um, I hadn't didn't own a suit, so I had to go and buy a suit. I think I turned up about four hours early. And I remember walking up the steps where all the pictures are of the former prime ministers, and there was this little lady at the top, Margaret Thatcher. And she, everyone thinks because of her reputation, she must be quite tall. She wasn't. She was minute, five foot four. And she would greet, she greeted us all at the top of the stairs. And she, she had this knack of sort of, she'd shake your hand. And as she shook your hand, she'd move it to the left. So you, <laughs> you moved into the room. And so I, I didn't drink, but we were handed these glasses of wine. And if you're in a reception, you feel a bit of an idiot if you haven't got something in your hand. So I had two glasses of wine. No, but even though you I got pissed. Well, <laughs> There is a story coming up. Prepare yourself. I'm six foot two. I'm a big guy. I wasn't quite as big in those days, but um, you would think with the size of me, I could tolerate alcohol. I can't. Two vodkas and I'm anybody's. Well, I had two glasses of wine. I thought, no, I better not have any more. But of course, you do feel a prat if you haven't got a glass. So I took another one. 
And just as I took the first sip from this glass, Margaret Thatcher walked by me. But it wasn't wine, it was whiskey and water, which which was her favourite tipple. So as I'm taking this sip and she's walking past me, I'm sort of going... And I was nearly sick on Margaret Thatcher's feet. Now, that could have changed the course of my life. (laughs) Because if I had been sick on Margaret Thatcher's feet, I know exactly what would have happened. She would have been like a mother hen, fussing around, clearing it up herself, because that's what she used to do. And anything went I think a waitress poured soup into Geoffrey Howe's lap once, and she wasn't concerned about Geoffrey Howe. It's the waitress that she was concerned about. So that... All of those things sort of, and, and I, I spent a lot of time on politics. I, I organised a lot of the campaign in the 83 election in Norwich North where a Tory MP defeated a Labour MP. I then went to work for the Tory MP in the House of Commons when I graduated. Um, anyway, coming back to your question about um, being but, gay. So the question about being gay is, is that, 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 that Conservative administration didn't have a particularly pro-gay reputation, did it? No. I knew that I was gay from the age of eight. Eight. Yeah. Well, or around <coughs> around then. Wow. Um, I can't pinpoint an incident. I just knew, and I knew I was different. And um, but this was the late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties. I can remember at the Freshers' Fair, the same one that I just described about the Conservatives. I walked past the Gay Society stand. And a guy called Nick Crook, um, who bizarrely I'm now friends on Facebook with like 30, 40 years later, he handed me a leaf and he said, are you going to join? And I said, well, I'm not gay. Right, right, right. right and so right. you don't have to be gay to join, just sort of show support. And I just said no. Um, and I don't know how confessional you want me to be, but I, I didn't... Uh, I suppose I didn't go looking for opportunities to sort of practiced what I believed and it's sort of I suppose what you've never had you don't miss Um, and it wasn't until I was 28 when I was living in Walthamstow that I actually did anything sexually with another guy I I had had lots of girlfriends and and I had genuine feelings for them I wasn't sort of just faking it I genuinely did care for them but I would always stop things before it got to a certain point if you know what I mean Um, and had I not met who I met in this would have been mid nineteen nineteen ninety, I think. Um, uh, who knows? I could have been one of these guys who got married and had kids, but would dabble on the side. And right, there right. are a lot of men around right. who do that sort of so thing. So coming out was a coming out. Well, was I didn't come out thing. for another. Well, I didn't come out to my family for another thirteen years. So I was forty when I came out to my parents. Now that and was after not your mum's mum. You said about mum and Jeremy Thorpe. I imagine <laughs> was that difficult. It was very difficult. Um, in London, most people kind of knew. Uh, sort of as time went on, I, I didn't keep it secret. I told one of my sisters um, because she had had a incident in her personal life, and we were just having a heart to heart, and I told her. Um, I wanted to tell my parents, I wanted to tell my best friend who I met at university, but I thought, well, I've kind of been lying all these years. And if you haven't been through this, you cannot comprehend how difficult this can be. Looking back, I wish I had done it years before. And I I had an email the other day from somebody who was 22 and must have read 
somewhere of me writing about this. And he said, look, I'm in a kind of similar situation. I'd like your advice. And I'm thinking, I'm not qualified to give you advice. Just because my when I did it, it sort of turned out okay. That doesn't mean to say it would with you. So I, re- I said, look, if you want to talk on the phone, fine. But he said, no, I'd actually rather you sent an email. So I sent this long email. <laughs> and he then replied and said, well, look, this is my situation and it was very, very different to mine. And I said, well, I don't think you can really draw too many lessons from me here. But it was interesting that he wanted to reach out to me having read what I'd written about it. So what happened was that I had decided at the age of 40 that I wanted to be a Conservative MP. And I thought, well, I have to be honest. I can't have this. I can't have anyone using this against me. Um, so I decided that if I ever got further than the first round of a selection process, I would tell my parents. And the, the, I think it was the first seat I applied for, Chipping Barnet, where Theresa Villiers is now the MP. Um, I got through to the interview section. I made a really good speech. I could tell that they all liked it. I answered the questions really well. I got them all laughing. And then they asked a question, which apparently, they, well, I didn't know at the time, but they do ask at every selection. I think it's the same in other parties too. Is there anything embarrassing about your private or business life that could cause a problem or embarrassment for the association? So just on the spur of the moment, I said, well, it's not embarrassing to me and I hope it's not embarrassing to you, but you should know that I'm gay. It might be more embarrassing if I tell you that I'm also a West Ham fan, bearing in mind this is Chipping <laughs> Barnet, where they're all Tottenham. So they all laughed at that. And I sort of I said, look, it doesn't affect the way I do things. I'm a, I'm a conservative who happens to be gay, not a gay person who happens to be a conservative. Um, it doesn't dominate my life. So I walked out of the meeting thinking it had gone well, and the agent ran after me and said, what the bloody hell did you do that for? He was gay as well. And I said, well, they asked me a question. I answered it. Well, you've lost votes by doing that. And I remember driving home around the M25 and David Davis phoned me up and wanted to know how it had gone. And so I told him what had happened. And he said, well, of course you should have said it. Don't regret being honest. I mean, um, so I got home and anyway, got a phone call. So I got through to the next round. So I thought, yay. (laughs) So now you've got to tell your mum and dad. So now I have to, well, I'll come to that in a second. But to finish off the selection story, I got through to the second round, did well in the second round, but with two votes of getting into the final. The final was three women. Now, in those days, if it had been two, one man and two women, the man always won. So we'll never know, but I suspect if I hadn't done that, I would now be the MP for Chipping Barnet. And it's still the right thing to have done. It was the right thing to have done. And I I genuinely don't have regrets. I would have loved to be an MP, but it it didn't happen. Um, So anyway, on that evening, or the next morning, I drove up to my parents and I told them. My my partner, who I'd been with at that point for eight years, um, which is 100 years in gay life, (laughs) um, (laughs) they knew him. He'd been to stay there, got really well with him. So I can't remember exactly how I told them. But I do remember my mother saying, yeah, but I know he's your friend. I said, no, it's slightly more than my friend. And eventually the penny dropped. And, of course, all my friends said, well, of course they know. And I said, look, I know my parents. They won't know. And they didn't know. And my father is always good in a sort of family crisis. And he sort of said, well, look, you have to live your own life, whatever makes you happy, blah, blah, blah. But my mother, I can, I can still remember looking into her eyes and seeing nothing. 
And the next morning, and I, I remember I left to go back home again, and I said to my sister, well, I think that went about as okay as it could have done. And she said, you have no idea, because she, she didn't want me to tell them. And I said, well, I have to tell them. I don't want them reading about it in the Daily yes, Telegraph. Yes, of course. Because I, I was... I would have been, well, in fact, I did become the first gay, the first conservative candidate to have actually told a selection committee that I was gay. There were plenty of told them afterwards they were, after they were selected, but not before. And when you're the first to do anything... You, Is that true? You were the first to tell yeah. a selection? Yeah. And, that's that's and extraordinary. Then it, and in North Norfolk, I told them... I, I was forced to tell them in North Norfolk because... Um, I'd forgotten that I'd agreed to speak at some Tory campaign for homosexual equality fringe meeting at the conference, and this, the selection meeting was just before the conference, and they'd all got flyers about it. And I remember the chairman ringing me up saying, um, we have a problem. And I said, no, no, it's not a problem. I'll, I'll address it. Just get someone to ask me the question at the selection meeting. He said, well, we can't do it directly because of the rules. We're not allowed to ask people about their sexuality. And I said, well, just say... Mr. Dale, we see you're speaking at this fringe meeting. Is this a subject on which you feel strongly? So I prepared this real sort of Bill Clinton tearjerker speech, and it really was. I mean, I've still got it on my computer somewhere. And it was <laughs> sort of what some of you will have family or friends who are gay. You may not know, but they are. Maybe your dustman's gay. Does it affect the way that he collects your refuse? No, it does not. Does it affect the way I do my job as a politician? No, it does not. And I, I couldn't because I do get very emotional and I, I will cry at Emmerdale. So, and I remember getting through it right to the last sentence and then my voice cracked oh, just as it's about to now. Oh, mate. <laughs> and they gave me a standing ovation. And in the, in, the final, in the next round, so I got through and in the next round, I got 66% of the vote. And I thought, well, good on you. Did you, this is, I mean, this sort of experience is, you're, you're known as, you know, you're here, you're a very warm human being and you're emotional. Um, and it makes, that's part of what makes people want to listen to you and, and find you an attractive figure, even if you're on the bloody right. <laughs> <laughs> and there, But there is something extremely, I don't know, is it, I mean, is this, is this too naive or just cackling to say, but something very humanising about the sorts of things that you have to go through like that? You, you learn from every experience, and I think particularly since I've been doing my radio show, um, which I started in well, October 2010, so I've been doing it for nearly nine years now, you cannot help but be affected by the people that you meet. And this is where I really resent the allegations that politicians are out of touch with their local communities. They see more than virtually anybody else because they they don't just have their post bag. They do their surgeries. They go and knock on people's doors. They see life warts and all. They know what's going on in various parts of their constituencies. Now, in many ways, they help us to do anything about the bad things that go wrong. But to pretend that they sit in their ivory towers in Westminster the whole time is just complete rubbish. So I've had it on both sides. I was a candidate. I spent uh, 18 months um, fighting an election in North Norfolk, which is not... the. I mean, there are real pockets of poverty no, in North Norfolk. No, I know Norfolk. it. I know it. Um, and I, 
So I learned a lot from that experience. And when you knock on someone's door, you don't know who's going to come to the door. Now, okay, if you knock on a big on a big house, you kind of know they're probably they're more likely to be conservative than not. But I never enjoyed doing that. Sandring, we're not knocking on the door. No, that was in the other bit. I, I cut my teeth on the Mile Cross Council Estate in Norwich, and there isn't there aren't many tougher council estates in East Anglia than that one. And this was in the 1983 election, and I literally knocked on virtually every door with other people. And that was my first real brush with poverty. And um, given that was the year of Margaret Thatcher's landslide, when the ballot boxes opened for that, that was where my MP got his majority from. It was partly due to council house sales, but it was much deeper than that. They saw they saw in Margaret Thatcher somebody bizarrely, given her reputation now, that actually was going to give them a chance. And she did. She gave them a chance to buy their own houses, buy shares and all the rest of it. And I mean, this is not the podcast to talk about whether that was the right policy or not, but they saw her as somebody who was giving them opportunity. And since that, and they saw the same in Tony Blair, I think, as well, to an extent. Um, But on the radio, you also hear people's real life experiences. And I know that being on the radio has made me much more left of centre on social issues than maybe I was before. Much more tolerant, maybe, much more empathetic, because... Take the bedroom tax. I could sit here and tell you why the bedroom tax was a good idea in theory, but in practice, it's been a disaster. I could tell you why universal credit is a good idea in theory, but for 20% of the people who receive it, it's been an absolute disaster. And when you get three grown men in a row on a radio phone in crying... You'd have to have a heart of stone. Universal not, credits. Universal, you know, well, it, it's like I have I have so many more people coming to my vicarage store um, yeah. uh, looking for food banks since yeah. you, we put universal credit yeah. in my area. So the theory is, it's the, whatever the theory it's is in unfortunately, practice, it's horrendous. The, the theory, I think all political parties have bought into the theory. But for whatever reason, and I don't, I don't wholly blame the politicians for this, I will, I'm afraid, blame the people who have been implementing it at the sharp end, the civil servants, who've got it catastrophically wrong. Now, you can say the buck stops with the politicians, and it does. But I'm afraid the DWP has not, shall we say, got um, the best civil servants in Whitehall in it. And it's horrendously complicated. Maybe it is too complicated for anyone to make work. I don't know. But you probably need to transfer half of the Treasury civil servants, because they are the brightest, to make this thing work. Um, But would they have necessarily the... I mean, you look at some of the rules and you think, well, people must have had a heart of stone to write these rules. And and if you're talking about benefits, it's not just an academic exercise of saying, oh, well, we in Whitehall will grant grant somebody um, 50 quid a week. It, there has to be some degree of understanding of the circumstances. Economists are not always in. terribly humanly centred. No, well, centered. they're not. They really aren't. So, and you look on issues like mental health and depression and um, suicide. And I know nothing or knew nothing about mental health. I've never had suffered from depression in my life at all. And I mean, I have been in circumstances where I think uh, I could easily have done. Um, so I've learned a lot on that. I, I was nominated for Broadcast of the Year for my work on mental health, which I'm very proud of. Um, because of what I do on the radio, somebody a couple of months ago, somebody who I, I'd only ever met once, but I had his number in my phone, and that's not what you're thinking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got a phone call at quarter to midnight saying from him saying, I'm going to kill myself. I have... Uh, I'm apparently not supposed to say the number, but I have a number of pills in front of me and I'm going to take them. 
And I thought, no, you're not, because you've rung me. You wouldn't have rung me if you wanted to take them. Sice was on the phone to him for 45 minutes, essentially talking him down from taking his own life. And um, I had no training in doing that. I did actually work on my university's sort of Samaritan's line for a bit, but I got no formal training. And, of course, the whole time you're thinking, well, if I say one word out of place here, I'm sure you've been in this situation, and you think, God, what a responsibility. But and you but you have to do it how you think right. And I was listening, which is the most important thing, I think. But I was also being a little bit hard at times. Yeah. And I said, mate, if you do this, I said, are your parents still alive? Yes. You've got brothers and sisters? Yes. I said, what do you think they're going to think? I mean, how can you inflict that pain on them? What do you think I'm going to think? Well, when I wake up in the morning and I haven't got a text from you telling me you're okay. And I then lightened it all up a bit. And by the end of the conversation, he was laughing and all the rest of it. And and he did text me the next morning, admittedly not till like 11.30. So I was a bit sort of on tenterhooks that he was fine. And he's phoned me two or three times since in, in not quite such a serious situation, but, but verging on it. And um, and he wanted me to talk about it on the radio. So I did. And I did a phone in on it. Um, I didn't think it was right for him to come on. Um but the number of people out there who are in this situation and feel incredibly lonely. And that is where the power of radio is so important because you don't know who you're talking to. And particularly on on days like Christmas Day, the radio is a social service for people on their own. And people who've never met me view me as a sort of as a friend, which I know sounds really weird. Yeah, I, I don't know you. I've only met you a few times, but I think of you like that. It's like, <laughs> it's weird. And I, I was in a cab last night, and this guy was sort of saying, oh, I listen to you all the time. And he, he, related, he said, I know you, you drive an Audi Q7, you go and see West Ham, your dogs are called Dude and Bubba. And I was thinking, these people know much more about me. And I do, my partner thinks I overshare, because I'm, a, I'm a, a bit of an open book. I said, can you keep nothing private? And I'm sure if he ever listened to this podcast, which he won't, he'd say, I can't believe you said that yeah, in yeah. the podcast. But... I mean, my, my wife accuses me. Exactly. Well, I can, I can imagine. <laughs> but in the end, you've got to be true to yourself. And I, there, was, there is a radio presenter who's no longer on LBC who created a completely false persona for himself and was very successful. But I just thought it's such a fraud. You've got to, you've got to let people into your life. And so if bad things happen in my life, I will talk about them on the radio um, you may remember or may not a certain incident on Brighton Seafront a few years ah, ago. There was you, a bit of a scrap, that? wasn't there? Yeah, I was. Uh, I ran a publishing company. I published Amy McBride's book, and he was doing an interview on Brighton Seafront, <coughs> and I was supposed to collect him in my car and take him to Hove to do an interview with LBC. Um, so I pull up, and I, I had a car, bizarrely, which had a television on the dashboard, so I switched that on. So I was watching this GMTV interview, and all I could see was this guy with a placard behind him and sort of shouting about nukes. I thought, well, why is nobody stopping this? So I looked over to the left, and they were literally like 20 yards away. So I get out of my car, quite calmly go over, and the sound guy is trying to sort of edge him out the way with his elbow. Um, so I go and give him a hand. <laughs> and it, I pulled his rucksack, so he sort of came back towards me. He then swung round and went to try and hit me, and which I dodged. But in the, the momentum of that made us both fall over. He had this Jack Russell dog. So I'm kind of... I'd fallen, I think, on top of him. <laughs> and I wasn't... I don't remember physically restraining him. Maybe I did, but it's, it's all on YouTube. If anybody wants to look, please don't. Um, 
And the dog was the saviour of the day because it was barking its head off, but instead of biting me, it bit its owner. No, (laughs) really? And of course, (laughs) the world's media were there and it was all filmed. Did you get done for that? Did you get... uh... Well, I I sort of did. I remember getting into the car, Damien got in... He said, "What was it?" He said, "I was aware of something happening. What happened?" So I told him. I said, "I said I don't think anything will come of that, will it?" Anyway, later on, um, I was having breakfast with my producers, and they were laughing about it. And I then did a very stupid thing and went and wrote a blog post about it all. And basically, it was very sort of. It's the oversharing thing of it. It was the oversharing bit. I was saying, I would do that for any of my authors. That's what oh, the publisher right. should do. And it was it was a bit stupid to do, really. And that set it off. Um, someone then complained to Brighton Police about it. I, I think I know who that was, a, a fellow broadcaster. And um, I was then broadcasting my show live from the Brighton Centre. It was on the day of Ed Miliband's speech. But all the news programmes were full of me because uh, there was footage of it. On Brighton Seafront. I didn't care about Ed Miliband's speech. I was on the news at 10. And I, I thought the world had gone mad. Anyway, I, during my programme, um, my producer came in. He said, right, it was in a commercial break. He said, um, the police are outside and they want to interview you. This was halfway through my programme. And I said, and apparently the head of the BBC politics department, Sue English, had told them I wasn't there. <laughs> which I, so they went away. <laughs> Um, but they came back later on, and Alistair Campbell was then, he was one of the guests, he came, he said, what's going on? So I told him, he said, well, look, if you need any help, let me know. And um, to cut a long story short, I was taken to Brighton Nick, after, I did the perp walk. Did you, did you do the whole show? I, I did the whole show, they let me do that. Um, and then at the end, my producer said, right, uh, you will follow me, you will not look to your left or your right, just follow me, you're going to get into an unmarked police car outside the building, but there are cameras and half the Westminster lobby is waiting to ask you questions. <laughs> and literally, I walked out and there was silence. And there was, I remember Nick Watt from Newsnight, David Wooding, and loads of others there with their notebooks ready, but none of them could bring themselves to say anything. And Gobby, do you remember Gobby, Paul uh, Lambert from the BBC? He was the one that would always shout out, are you going to resign, Prime Minister? <laughs> well, he followed me out, kept asking me questions. And then uh, I got into this car and off I went. And apparently he asked my producer, Matt, he said, um, is that a police car? Matt said, no, he's got a lot of cars. It'll be one of his. <laughs> but I knew that, that I would be charged with something, even though the police were... It was quite clear they didn't want me to ch- be charged with anything because they they had presumably seen the footage then and they knew that there was nothing violent about it. Um, but Caroline Lucas had been arrested for some fracking protest blocking the road and she had been charged with whatever. And I thought, there is no way that they're going to charge Caroline Lucas not and not me. And And it was when the police officer said, well, my boss is taking this over now, I thought, well, that's it. Uh, so I was offered a caution. Didn't really understand what a caution meant particularly, but I accepted it. And I had to go back to the police station two days later. And I remember driving down to Brighton, or my partner was driving me down to Brighton. I thought, well, I, I bet the press are there. I'll have to have some sort of statement. So I started tapping out a statement. And then I thought, I'm not sure I'm the right person to write this. So I sent it to my sister 
and to Alastair Campbell, bizarrely. <laughs> really? And he was brilliant. Um, within five minutes, he'd come back. He said, right, let me have a look at this. I'll come back to you in 10 minutes. Meanwhile, my sister did. She made some suggestions, which Alastair, th- Alastair thought were good. Uh, she thought it was brilliant that Alastair Campbell had taken on her advice. And, he, and I was full of things. I, I'm happy to go on an anger management course, all that sort of stuff. And I said, you don't need to do that. That's ridiculous. It's far too long. It just needs to be completely matter of fact with a nice quote from you at the end and that's it. So that's what I did. Then we got to the police station and um, sure enough, we drove past and there were like three cameras outside, South East News, BBC, goodness knows what. So we went around the back and I, I evaded them. Only time in my life I've never wanted to be on camera. <laughs> and um, But even to this day, I would say three or four times on Twitter, every day someone will retweet the video oh, or, really? or make some horrible comment about it. And it's all about Ian Dale beats up pensioner. Well, the guy was ex-SAS. I didn't beat him up. I never punched him. I never kicked him. All I did was pull him away by his... But that that apparently accounts as assault. So guilty as charged. It's your brush with the law. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about um, political discourse, actually, mm. because one of, the things, um, one of the things that strikes me that you contribute to the sort of, you know, sort of public conversation is a much more civil approach to political discourse between, you know, different people. But we live in a time, pretty shrill political division, don't we? And then people are incredibly, I mean, you mentioned social media now, but people are incredibly unpleasant to each other. Where, where's all that come from? Why have we become so much more unpleasant in our political discourse? Well, I'm not going to pretend to be a saint on this because I am as guilty as a lot of people in uh, saying rude things on Twitter because it's such an instantaneous medium. If someone calls me a twat or a whatever, yeah, I... your, your natural instinct is to reply in yeah, kind. I'm the same. How dare you? I'm the same. How, you've never met me. You would never say this to me if you were opposite me. But I'm afraid I have got better at it. And I wrote an article over Christmas for the Mail on Sunday about this, for which I got criticised for writing for the Mail on Sunday because the thinking goes, well, the Mail sort of incite all of this. But I thought, well, I was asked to write the article and and I've tried to use it as an attempt to improve the way that I conduct myself because there are people who've said, isn't it weird how on the radio Ian Dale is this nice, affable guy, but on Twitter he's an absolute beast? (laughs) And there's an element of truth in that. So... Instead of calling someone a twat now, I'll call them a Muppet, which in a way is more insulting. <laughs> but I do try and count to ten, and I, 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 I do try not to rise to the bait as much as I once did, but it, it is difficult. Social media and the internet has been brilliant in many ways for democratising everything. Because 20 years ago, if you were Mrs Miggins at 32 Acacia Avenue, you might write to your local paper once a year, letter might or might not get published. That was your only voice. Um, Now, Mrs. Megan's can write a blog, she can tweet, she can go on Facebook, Instagram or whatever. And that's great if you've got good intentions. But if you are somebody who has malign intentions, it's even better because you've really got an opportunity now to vent your spleen. So when Anna Soubry gets sort of nearly assaulted outside Parliament, um, the abuse starts even worse even more because people who want to call her whatever they want to call her um, have the opportunity to do it so do you think the coarsening of our political discourse is is largely down to social media or or there are other wider factors um 
I wouldn't put it all down to social media. I'm sure there are lots of other factors, but I think that is. I mean, a, we were pretty, pretty abusive to each other, sort of like Mrs. Thatcher's time and all of that, and minor yeah. strike. I remember being. I remember, you know, well before social media, we were bloody rude to each other. <laughs> well, that, I been, I'm that, sure that we'd is, have been rude to each other. That is true. And if you look back to the <clears> cartoons of the political cartoons of the 1800s. I mean, they were incredibly cruel. And Gilray cruel. and yeah. uh, all that sort of and stuff. And so all this stuff about people being rude in the House of Commons, I think, actually, comparatively, our politicians today aren't as rude as they were in in those days. Um, I, I don't know where it comes from. I think it's partly down to the disappearance of deference in our society, which, again, I would say was in some ways a good thing, that we, we don't defer to our so-called elders and betters because we think they've sort of buggered up the country in many ways. So why should we defer to people that we think have done that? Um, and I, I I just think it's people feel able to express themselves more honestly now, but honesty... As a, is a double-edged sword. It can be good. It could be used for good, and it can be used for ill. There is no solution to this. I mean, I'm not advocating that Twitter or Facebook should be closed down, but I do think Twitter could regulate itself a bit more. Um, why, why are people allowed to create accounts that are totally anonymous? And I've I, certainly in the last few months, I have found that all the abuse has come from accounts with between naught and twenty followers that have been recently set up. Now, I have my suspicions that they are. And it is mainly on Brexit. I mean, there are often, I think, I'm not going to engage on Brexit anymore on Twitter because the, the people that are having a go, they, I don't think they're real people. I think they are bots. Um, so there's Remain bots. Yeah. No, the, I mean, how, have we, how have we allowed it to get to the point where Remainers are seen to be on the side of the angels and Brexiteers are considered to be evil people? We both have completely uh, genuine, logical arguments and yet those of us on the brexit side of the argument are made to feel somehow that we're immoral because we're arguing for us to leave a political institution how has it come to that it's come to that partly because of uh leading lights in the brexit movement not stepping up to the plate and putting the argument forward um and i think that's an absolute travesty and these hashtag fbpe people these people have brexit derangement syndrome They've lost all sense of proportionality. Alistair Campbell and Andrew Davis have admitted it to me live on the radio that they've got it. And there are people on our side of the argument that have it too. Some people no doubt think I have. But I, I'm not dogmatic on this. I, my position on Brexit, I, I remain a solid Brexiteer, but I think the way the government's handled it has been a shambles. I think the negotiating strategy, if there has been one, has been absolutely terrible. And I've called them out for all of these mistakes. Um, and... I, but I will also call out the ERG for the fact that they are jeopardising Brexit. If if it doesn't happen on the 29th of March, it will be largely because of Jacob Rees-Mogg and his colleagues who haven't learned to count and they don't understand that their dogmatic attitude means that... Th Theresa May can't get anything through Parliament. Now, I would rather have 70% of something rather than 0% of something, and they're heading for 0% of something, you... because if it doesn't happen on the 29th <clears throat> of March, that will put wind in the sails of the people's vote side of the argument. And if there is a people's vote, I still think Leave would win it, but it may not. So then where are we? We have another year of uncertainty, and it is affecting the economy now. And I'm not somebody who says that all of these companies that cite Brexit as a reason for disappointing results or whatever, I'm not somebody who says that they're all wrong. I think some of them are. They use it as a mask for their own incompetence. 
But when you have the chief executive of Honda say, and in Britain and Japan say that the reason they closed down Swindon is not because of Brexit, the FBP ears now say, oh, that's because they're just being typically polite. They don't want to offend people. Yeah, it didn't yeah, stop yeah. Nissan, did yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, didn't yeah. stop Honda closing the, the company in Turkey. So I'm not a dogmatist on this, even though I know people think I am. But I, my You'd go most, for no deal, would you? If necessary. I'm, it's not something I want. But uh, we did vote to leave. We didn't vote to leave with a deal or without a deal. We just voted to leave. Um, I don't think we're going to be allowed to leave with no deal, um, even though it's the law of the land that we, we must. Um, I think it's a high possibility now that we won't leave on the 29th of March. And I know exactly who I blame for that. And that'll be the ERG. That will be largely well. It'll be the incompetence of the government and the uh, fact that the ERG have been like ostriches. And, and our political and and the way in which many ordinary people will see our political institutions will be damaged by this. Well, the problem is that even now there are many people who voted for the first time. People in their forties and fifties voted for the first time in the referendum because they thought it meant something. They thought they could actually have an influence for once, and politicians are now doing their best to tell them that we don't care what you think we're going to we know better than you, you little people you were stupid and these people will never <clears throat> vote again and the conservative party itself should be very careful here because there are many many conservatives who have said told me live on air that sorry if this doesn't go through we'll never support the conservative party again now I've heard this throughout my adult life on various... I remember Sunday trading in the 1980s when I worked in Parliament. Um, people said, well, I'm never voting for the Conservative Party if they put this through. Well, I mean, sometimes you do have to take these things with a pinch of salt. But on this, I think it threatens to damage our democracy for years to come, decades to come. And the, and the Tory parties, I mean, I know the Labour Party has its all, all its own problems and so forth, but I'm talking to you and you're the... You're the member of the Tory party. I'm not a member of the Tory party. Are you not? I haven't been a member of the Tory party for eight years. When I joined LBC... I'm sorry, I presumed you were. No, everybody does. Um, It's a very interesting phenomenon that whenever I write something critical of Theresa May or the Tory party, no one takes any notice. But they always remember the times when I think say that they've done something right. And I have been very critical in recent years. But um, no, I decided in 2010 if I was going to do a daily radio show, I shouldn't be a member of a political party. I, I still vote. I have, in the last local elections, I voted Liberal Democrat because my local Tory council, I think, is corrupt. So I, I'm not, again, I'm not a dogmatist. I will, I'm a pragmatist. And in some ways... You, but you, the party, my question is, the party you've long been associated yeah, with, yeah. Oh, that's very interesting, is... Um, you know, he's being. You know, you 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 have harsh things to say about the ERG, and on the other the other sort of Remainy side. Now they're all beginning to break away into this new independent group. It's the, the prime minister is you know incompetent as you describe her in terms of her handling of Brexit. This is a very sorry picture. It is a very sorry picture, and I suppose the. The moment that I realised that she wasn't up to the job in terms of negotiating Brexit was probably my most famous moment in broadcasting when she came in to do a phone-in, which was four days after her terrible speech at the 2017 conference. So oh, the I coughing thought, one. Yeah, so credit to her for doing this because I, I thought they'd pull out of doing it. So she came in to do a phone-in and was doing actually rather well. Bear in mind she's not a natural sort of phone-in woman. <laughs> she was doing rather well. And then some uh, Italian lady phoned in about citizens' rights, and she was just completely tinnied to this woman. And I then said to her, well, if there was a referendum tomorrow, which way would you vote? 
and the look of terror in her eyes was something to behold. And she started doing this gurning thing that she does when she's unsure of herself. Like, <laughs> what does she do? She, well, it's does a, she? A bit difficult to do in a podcast. But <laughs> it's a bit like Gordon Brown used to do with his so chin. So when his chin goes yeah. round and round. And she, I, I can't really describe it, but you, you know it when you see right, it. Right, okay. And she said, um, well, Ian, there isn't going to be a referendum. I said, no, no, no. But if there were, you are a prime minister of a government taking through Brexit. So presumably you think this is good for the country, even though you voted Remain. So you'd presumably vote Leave if there was another referendum. And she wouldn't answer the question. I went two or three times. I said, look, I asked this question to Jeremy Hunt last week at the conference, and he said that he'd voted Remain, but he said because of the way the European Commission has treated us and because all the project fear hadn't come true, he said he would now vote Leave. If he can answer that question, if I can answer that question, why can't you answer that question, Prime Minister? And she just went to pieces. And at that point, I thought, she really doesn't believe in this, does she? You put a you putting a Remainer in charge of leaving is always going to be trouble. That interview got more coverage, I think, than anything I've ever done. Andrew Neil referred to it as the Ian Dale question, which the, my ego just sort of exploded <laughs> at that point. Because we, I mean, if, look, if you're in broadcasting, you have an ego. Yes, I'm going yes, to admit yes. it. And I, that and Andrew Neil, I think, is the best interviewer. He's scary. In Britain. I love him. One of the politest men you could ever hope to meet as well. And that meant an awful lot to me because being validated by your peers, particularly when, I mean, I'm someone who's not a trained broadcaster or journalist. I still have a huge imposter syndrome about it all. Even though I've won awards and I know I can do it, there's still part of me that can't quite believe that I'm still doing it. A bit like most of my audience, probably. <laughs> What's next for Ian Dale? I'm 56. Um, I... I'm doing what I love doing. I can't imagine doing it anywhere else. Um, I I do do TV stuff, but I don't enjoy it as much as radio. Radio is just such a different medium to TV. Um, I love talking to people. I love interviewing people. I mean, I had the other night on the programme, and this is the advantage. I, I was moved from drive to the evenings when I got Eddie Mayard, and it was a decision I, I did support in the end. Uh, um, but I moved to the evenings and I said, well, I'll do it, but I want to do a different kind of show. And one of the aspects of the show is that I can do long form interviews, which you don't get anywhere on the media apart from podcasts now. So I had this guy called Mesa Gifford on. Have you heard of him? No. He's a, he was a 27 year old city trader who went to fight with the Kurds against ISIS in Syria. Well, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine how anyone comes to the conclusion that that's a good idea. And he spent three years fighting ISIS in Syria. He was in Raqqa when it, when it fell. And he came in ostensibly to do an hour. And I've done, I did something I'd never done before. I let it go over to the next quarter. So he did 75 minutes, which is unheard of on TV or radio nowadays. But I knew it was the right thing to do because I could see all the tweets and texts coming in saying this is the most amazing interview I've ever heard. And to my mind, if you've got a good interview in the studio, keep going. Don't be restricted. It's like on podcasts. Why, why do people think that 20-minute podcasts are what you should be doing? If you've got a good person in the podcast, let it go. And I've, I've, Oh, we've had a nice time now. That's very yeah, nice. Exactly. <laughs> I, I do a podcast with Jackie Smith, the former Labour Home Secretary, called For The Many. And we, do it, we record it on a Sunday morning. She's in her front room. I'm in my front room. We do it all over sort of some wizardry on, the, on our laptops. And we were told that we should do it for 20 minutes. I thought, this is ridiculous. We've settled on a format, we've, and, and it's now normally between 65 and 75 minutes, which 
apparently most people think is far too long for a podcast. Have I ever had to complain for any one of our tens of thousands of listeners? No, because they like it. Yeah, and going. so just do it how it if, if one week you haven't got anything to talk about shorten it but on this interview it just the reaction was incredible what's the what's the so this is confessions and I've never asked anybody this on confessions actually <laughs> I've never asked I don't know why I haven't asked anybody about this but I'm when you were talking about Theresa May I was thinking about her confession running through a wheat field do you remember oh that thing God. she said the worst thing she did was when she was yeah. a kid running what's the Indel confession where would it be what well, it's funny because <laughs> what I don't think you were on this edition, but we on. I do a program called Cross Question on LBC, eight o'clock on a Wednesday evening. A bit like any questions, but more fun. And um, we had a text from somebody asking the panel, "What's their wheat field moment?" Oh. And what I've discovered is when you ask questions like this, um, it's generally only one of the panelists will give you a good answer. And Suella Braverman, the former Brexit minister, was on. <laughs> she came up with an even worse answer than Theresa May's. She said, I eat whole packets of digestive biscuits. Oh, shame on you. <laughs> My, um... Oh, oh no, I don't. I, did, I, I no, don't no, even know what I'd say. Oh, I, but you see, I've got so many that I okay. can tell you. <laughs> Getting a blowjob on Bondi Beach. <laughs> That's uh, that's that's a that's a pretty good one. <laughs> Is that going to be edited out? <laughs> no. And you and you proposed on the beach in Holcombe Beach, didn't I did. you? That's right. You've I, done I your saw research. that. Yes, yes. Because I know that beach is a wonderful beach. Sorry that, to, that was to re- move away from blowjobs to beaches. <laughs> that was really weird because this was in it was in two thousand and six seven, and it was two years after the civil partnership legislation had come in, and I'd been with my partner for. 11 years by that point but never we'd never really sort of thought about it i suppose but then i sort of thought well this is something that we ought to do marriage yeah and we did consider it marriage and why why marriage not just civil partnership because you know why why well, why, why not just, stick just at finishing that? the holcomb beach thing yes um i decided that was a really romantic place to do it and we were walking along holcomb beach and he wouldn't stop walking and in the end i said will you stop walking and sort of then asked him and he wouldn't give me an answer. And I'd always thought, well, if somebody doesn't say yes immediately, oh, he turns the fuck no. off. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, 23 years on from meeting, we're still together. Nice. Um, why marriage? Uh, in two th- when, when, when was it they brought that in? In 2014, oh, something like that. Yeah. Anyway, we, we upgraded or converted or whatever the phrase is. Um, and we weren't actually going to bother because we both thought, well, we consider ourselves married. So what's the point? It's just a bit of paper. And then I broke the revelation that it would enhance his pension rights, and that did it. Oh, I see. It was, and, and we did it in Norwich Registry Office over a photocopier. Well, when I say oh, we did it, I we know. signed the papers over yes. a photocopier. It was, it's not terribly romantic in those see, places. I, we haven't touched on religion at all, um, and I'm not religious, even though I was brought up in the Church of England. I was confirmed in the Church of England. I was a bell ringer. I'm a, I am a campanologist. <laughs> um we were given the choice of going in the choir or bell ringing, and we thought that bell ringing would t- wouldn't take so much time, so we did bell ringing. Um, but I've never believed in God. Um, I'm agnostic rather than atheist because I think, well, if I don't, I can't prove that God doesn't exist, but I can't prove he does exist. So therefore, I have to wait till someone can prove one way or the other. So because I but think, are you quite an ag- are you quite an Anglican agnostic, yes, as it were, in that. I would have liked to have got married in a church. I will be buried in a churchyard. I, I hate the thought of crematoriums. And I've I've done lots of eulogies at family and friends' funerals. 
and I think I have a lot of Christian values. My father never really went to church for it. My mother did because it was a sort of social thing to do. Wives in the village went to church, did the flowers and all the rest of it. My dad would go to harvest festival, carol service, that sort of thing. And I remember the vicar said to him outside the church, oh, nice to see you here, Gary. And my dad, I mean, he didn't raise his voice, but he said, I don't have to come to church to prove that I'm a Christian. And he then explained a few things about how that was the case. Now, I think, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, in our village, I have a house in Norfolk, a very small village, and I, I sometimes do go to church there. If I want to think, I'll either go for a walk along Munsley Beach or I might go and sit in the church to think. Um, and, the, and religion fascinates me. I love doing religious hours on my show and listening to people talking about it. And I've always wanted, I suppose, if I'm honest... I've always kind of wanted to find religion, but nobody has ever managed to help me do so. And when so. you sit in the church, go and sit in the church on your own, it's a, it's a way of sort of putting Ian Dale and Ian Dale's problems and issues in life in a sort of like a wider, bigger context. Um, some Something of that, order, like, even if that context is I, silence, I, I, really. I, I, yeah, well, that's exactly it. I'm not going <clears> to <throat> sort of overplay it. I will go into a church because it's a quiet place to be where nobody else is going to be with me, and I can sort of sit and think about things. And I, I don't do it very often. But um, I remember at university, it's funny, I, I, I went back to UEA last Friday to do a talk to some of the students, and I walked past what used to be called the chaplaincy, it's now called the Multi-Faith Centre. And I remember going to that, a friend of mine at the time, um, who bizarrely I had lunch with this week, hadn't seen for 33 years. Um, I used to go there with her. She, And I kept looking at these people thinking, they get so much out of this. Why can't I understand what they get out of it? Because I, I always have this bit of a block where people who I regard as highly intelligent seem to believe in fairies. And I, I can't get my head around that at all because, I, as we've discovered, I, I'm a bit of an emotional person. I don't always think in the most logical way. So in some ways, I think, well, why can't I accept that there can be some sort of superior being? Because the logical side of my brain tells me that that simply cannot be the case. Um, and it's a bit like all the, the spirit world. That That fascinates me. Psychics fascinate me. Mediums fascinate me. Um and I, I remember going to, do you know Sally Morgan? She she used to do a show on UK Living and she psychic to the celebrities. Oh, no, no, no. No. I mean, hilarious. I don't believe in star signs, but I'm a Sagittarius and naturally sceptical. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I went to see her do, because on television, it was all quite convincing. She'd sort of read all read these people's palms or whatever and tell them all sorts of, oh, I feel... Do you know someone called Margaret? Oh, oh yes, Margaret's my bollocks. mother. I hate the fact that you've gone from religion to this. Well, I know. It makes me well, but, feel... to, but to me, it's it's oh. all it's all part of the same right, thing. Right. Okay. So I went to see Sally Morgan at Eastbourne Theatre, and the, most of the audience was middle-aged women, and she started on her spiel, and it was awful. Is is there a Margaret in the room? Nobody put their hand up. Is there a Maureen in? And she go. Oh dear. Yes, yes. <gasps> I've got Bill. Oh, yes, I know someone called Bill. And I, I was sort of sitting there tutting because all these women turning around. Saying, Shh! This isn't anything to do with This isn't religion, no, it, though. It, it really isn't. It is, because if you believe in the fact that there can be some sort of superior being, you can believe in ghosts, you can believe in spirits, you can believe in contact with the other side. Now, I don't believe in any of that. Having said that, 
I did go and see a psychic about my mother. Because my sister had been to something in, something in a restaurant where this psychic came. And the things he told her about my mother, I, to this day, I cannot understand how he knew them. And, and I do find it all rather fascinating, even though I can't bring myself to believe it. I mean, I, I'm not going to relate all the things he said because it's sort of, I suppose, a bit private. Yeah. And my sister would kill me. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, I can't prove that that world doesn't exist any more than I can prove that it can or any more than you can prove to me that the God that you believe in is real. Ian Dale, what a great conversation. I knew that would end it. (laughs) (laughs) What a great great conversation. I don't think I'll... uh... Uh, after talking to you, I don't think I'll. I think I'll be of a man of beaches now. Go from Brighton Beach he to Holcombe Beach he, to Bondi Beach. It's just you know, you're a man of beaches. I, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you, my friend. And you. Very good. First class. <laughs>